You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dulavan Barwari. Welcome to Season 3. In our first episode of the new season, we interview Serhang Hamasaid, the Director of Middle East Programs at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. Serhang is also a lecturer at the Foreign Service Institute on ISIS and challenges to governance in Iraq. And he's featured in events and briefings on Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and the Middle East. He obtained a master's degree in international development policy from Duke University and is a Fulbright alumnus. The United States Institute of Peace is an American nonpartisan, independent institute that was founded by Congress and is tasked with promoting conflict resolution and prevention worldwide. And now, the interview with Sarhang Hamasaid. Kaksar Hank, welcome to the Kurdistan in America podcast. Thank you, Kak Lavan. Uh, good to be with you. It's a pleasure having you, Kaksar Hank. Let's begin our discussion with a little bit about you. Where in Kurdistan is your family from? Uh, I am originally from uh, Soleimaniya or Slemani, as uh, the locals would say it in Kurdish. Uh, and it is there where I was raised and uh, I was born, raised and spent most of my life before I came to the United States. Very well. Shari Halmatu Qurbani, the Kurdish Shari Halmatu Qurbani. And, and the cultural capital of Kurdistan. Now, you were a Fulbright scholar and you obtained a master's degree from Duke University. Tell us a bit about your journey to America. What were some of the challenges that you experienced when you first arrived? And how did you get adjusted to your new home and especially to a new culture? Right. So uh, actually, it's been uh, a few times that I came to the U.S. before I uh, finally settled here. So actually, before uh, my study at Duke, I first came to America for a couple of uh, weeks of training, uh, then went back a few years after. In 2005, I returned as a Fulbright scholar, um, did my education at Duke University in North Carolina, uh, studied international development policy, then went back, worked uh, in Erbil for a couple of years, uh, and it was then I came back uh, to the U.S. Um, uh, around 2009. It was uh, deep in the impact of the financial crisis, uh, so very very difficult years. Um, it was a sig- it was a very difficult adjustment in terms of finding a job opportunity, in terms of um, really becoming uh, a different person in, in ways to be a father, a friend, a husband, a member of society in a different culture. Uh, So it took a lot of learning, a lot of uh, adjustments. um, And obviously, uh, this is a society where um, people are friendly, people help you uh, where they can. And I had good friends. So uh, yeah, that's how I uh, readjusted. Very interesting story, Kaksar Hank. Yeah, the 2009 financial crisis was uh, very worrisome at the time. I recall that. Now, let's turn to your work in Iraq to focus on the United States Institute of Peace, where you're directing the Middle East project, the Middle East program, actually. Uh, You've been engaged very heavily in Iraq and the Kurdistan region, including the disputed areas. And you recently visited the Kurdistan region and participated in two conferences, if I, if I, based on my understanding. And I actually attended one of the workshops that you've you chaired at the American University of Kurdistan back in November. Tell us about your experience when you returned to Kurdistan and what you witnessed. 
Yeah, so probably just quickly for your um, uh, uh, for for the audience, uh, for those who don't know, the U.S. Institute of Peace uh, was created by uh, Congress in 1984. It has an international mandate. Uh, it is um, a national, uh, nonpartisan, independent institute, and it is dedicated to the proposition that uh, a world without violent conflict uh, is possible. Uh, peace is possible. Peace is uh, practical and essential for U.S. and global security. And we do our work through uh, research, through informing policy and the public. Uh, we build capacity for conflict analysis, designing dialogue processes, and we support peace initiatives. Uh, we've been working in Iraq and in the Kurdistan region since 2003 uh, and interrupted. I'd be happy to uh, say more about the kind of work that we do. But um, if we go to the particular direct question about the visit to um, my recent visit, uh, which was in October and November, I, I was in Erbil, I was in Duhok, I had a chance to visit Slemani as well, um, where I met with a wide range of uh, government leaders from the federal government of Iraq, from the Kurdistan regional government, but also uh, community leaders from different provinces. This was right after the national parliamentary elections. Uh, so much of the talk then and still now uh, is dominated by the outcome of the elections and the government formation process and what this means for the different uh, communities. Uh, overall, what I have been hearing uh, from uh, everybody I met uh, was that the uh, elections were probably the cleanest elections that Iraq had um, uh, since 2005. Uh, obviously, there are parties who uh, are objecting to the outcomes of the elections, but for the most part, uh, people were, uh, were really uh, finding it the, mo the cleanest uh, elections. Uh, and the other uh, thing was there was just a, a, a degree of concern that those who do not accept the results of the elections may uh, may seek violence as a way to resolve differences. So that concern existed then. It still can, uh, can exists now. Uh, it peaked uh, on November seventh uh, when there was a drone attack on the house of uh, Prime Minister Kadhimi's uh, residence. Uh, there has been other incidents of violence, but for the most part, it has been controlled. In the Kurdistan region, uh, there was just a general uh, sense of concern that they are surrounded by challenges all around. Some people would call it, um, we've been surrounded by fire from all, uh, all directions. And they were referring to the um, ongoing problem of ISIS, uh, the concerns that they had with members of the popular mobilization forces, uh, uh, the, the, the challenge with the PKK, pressure from neighboring countries, and the list goes on and on. Um, and uh, another thing, the uh, diverse, you know, Iraq uh, and the Kurdistan region being a diverse society, the ethnic and religious minorities or components, as they would call them uh, in Iraq, they were feeling that their marginalization is continuing because the bigger actors in Iraq are dominating the scene and actually even taking their seats. So uh, it was a combination of, okay, good that the election was over. Now, how would the government formation process goes? Will it result in change for people? These were the, the key themes that I picked up uh, when I was there. Very interesting. Now, we will talk about uh, the three main points that you 
mentioned, we'll first begin by zooming uh, to the security and political situation in Nineveh Plains and Sinjar regions. Let's begin with Nineveh Plains. How is the security situation now, and what is the fate of the IDPs in, in Nineveh Plains? Right. So um, for the, uh, the ethnic and religious minorities, whether you speak about the Christians or the Ezidis or the Shabak or the Sabian Mandaeans, in general, there is a general concern that uh, for, for them, security has uh, different elements. There is the security that their very existence in the country. Uh, many of them have seen their numbers go down significantly, especially the uh, Christian community, the Sabian Mandaean community. And now, with many years of displacement and conflict, uh, the Ezidis are seeing their numbers go down in the form of migration leaving leaving the country. Uh, so they are very concerned uh, for their uh, security. Uh, that security, obviously in the past um, six or seven years, a big existential threat to them has been uh, the terrorist organization ISIS. Uh, before that, it was Al-Qaeda uh, in, uh, in Iraq. Um, they also cite, um, and these are cross-cutting um, in, in, those, in those themes. Then there are some uh, uh, probably localized concerns that are probably uh, unique to, um, uh, to each area whether uh, we talk about Nineveh Plains or, 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 or Sinjar. Um, in the, the presence of elements of the popular mobilization forces uh, is an, a concern. So for, for uh, each of these communities have formed their own uh, armed groups, whether you talk about the Christians or the Shabak or the, 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 uh, the Yazidis. Uh, but specifically to the Nineveh Plains, uh, there is a dynamic between the Christian and the Shabak community. There are tensions that predate the conflict with ISIS and the formation of the PMF, um, and that continues today. So that is an area of concern. So they do, there is not an immediate direct threat of ISIS, but the, the, the ISIS as a threat continues for the country, so they are concerned about that. The PMF and the security dynamics, having multiple actors, not knowing who to go to for help. And they also often cite that the uh, federal government of Iraq and the federal security forces uh, are probably not um, um, uh, uh, sufficiently providing security from their perspective. So, and the area being in the disputed territories between the Kurdistan regional government and Baghdad adds to their anxiety and concern about security. So, and that had an effect on a good number of the Christian community not returning, a good number of the Yazidi community not returning. Yes, my understanding is that uh, since 2003, uh, before the second Gulf War, the Christian pop population has in Iraq has dwindled from a million, roughly a million, to less than 200,000. And most of the Christians took refuge to, to the Kurdistan region. How many of those Christians from Nineveh Plains and Mosul have returned to their uh, places of origin? Uh, so to know, any, so you're absolutely right about the general trend where yeah. the uh, Christian population ha have seen a significant drop uh, um, in their population in Iraq. They would themselves cite uh, about a million and a half uh, in 2003. Um, the, when I checked uh, on that number again in November of um, 2013, 
they, they, they said that number had dropped to about half a million then. Uh, and now uh, there are different estimates of whether it's a, they all, I think, agree that's probably below uh, 200,000. Um, of that, uh, I think that probably the largest number are still in the Kurdistan region. Uh, probably, and it varies from one locality to another, whether you're talking about Bartilla and the Nineveh Plains, whether you are talking about Tuluskov, whether you're talking about Baghdida. Um, uh, it, it varies from 50%, 40 40%, um, so not, um, and those numbers, there's not an exact census for that. These are estimates. Very well. Now let's turn to Sinjar region. Uh, the security situation seems to be either similar or worse in, in many ways. Uh, and there was this agreement back in October 2020 between the central government and the KRG, uh, the Sinjar agreement. What is the situation now? Has that agreement been implemented? What are, the, what are some of the obstacles for implementing it? I think you're right to think that uh, actually Sinjar is much more complicated uh, than what you're dealing with uh, in uh, in Nineveh Plain, and that's because um, the the composition of the security forces are different there. You have the presence of uh, forces affiliated uh, with the PKK, and uh, the yeah, so the the dynamics uh, has the interests of Turkey. Uh, the interests of Iran, so that there's a lot of geopolitics uh, represented in that very, uh, very spot. The uh, so uh, the, the agreement, the Sinjar agreement, uh, was supposed to uh, get some of these uh, forces out, like the PKK affiliated forces, the uh, forces affiliated with the Popular Mobilization Forces. But one year after the agreement, and everyone I spoke with, uh, they, 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 they considered the, the agreement unimplemented, and uh, they uh, felt that the, they put the responsibility of the federal government of Iraq for not being able to implement uh, that agreement. And the key reason for that is that the, the, those key actors uh, who the agreement was trying to get out were not party to the agreement, and to force the PMF out, to force the PKK out, um, would require the use of force and violence and insta- more, more instability. And I think all parties opted not to to do that. There has been moments of tensions where um, one side tried to exert its influence more, uh, and there has been a degree of violence. But the, these uh, incidents were uh, uh, contained pretty quickly. We have also, Sinjar has also been the setting for um, Turkish drone attacks on uh, uh, groups and leaders that it perceives to be, um, or it considers to be affiliated with the PKK. So the situation there remains complicated, um, and uh, uh, the the the, the, popula- the displaced populations unable to return because of that complexity. And there are some unresolved issues uh, where uh, the majority of the uh, Ezidi community considers the Sunni Arab neighbors as either perpetrators or enablers of ISIS and contributors to the, 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 the um, uh, acts of genocide and, and uh, sexual slavery against uh, the Ezidi women. So there are a lot of communal tensions that needs to be worked with. 
As USIP, we tried to help uh, with some elements of that in the northern part of, uh, of uh, Sinjar. There has been some degree of progress, but there is a lot that uh, remains to be uh, unresolved. So now we are on the cusp of having a new government in Baghdad. We will have to see if the new government will uphold the Sinjar agreement and will try to implement it. Yeah, it's a complicated matter. Now, a related topic is the threat of ISIS. ISIS has regrouped and stepped up its terrorist activities both in Iraq and Syria. How is the resurgence of ISIS impacting the area? Uh, ISIS is an ongoing threat. It has continued to be an ongoing threat even um, after the military defeat um, of the terrorist organization in Iraq in uh, December of 2017 and in March in, in Syria in March of 2019. The um, uh, threats that they present is in the form of attacks in different on communities, on security forces, on the Peshmerga, on the Iraqi army. Uh, so and they have they step up their attacks uh, from time to time. So th- they are th- several thousands of their fighters um, are still out there. And then there are large uh, swaths of land uh, that there are no security presence uh, that are in between the front line of the Iraqi security forces and the and the Peshmerga. Uh, there has been talks, different times, and agreements between um, the KRG and the federal government in Baghdad to create uh, units uh, that would um, uh, basically. Uh, increase and step up security in those areas, but those have not resulted in stopping uh, ISIS. And as we talk about this terrorist organization and the conflict with ISIS, it is really important uh, not to forget about the heavy human legacy that this conflict has left behind in the form of uh, internally displaced persons. um, And the most complicated of those are those families, individuals and families, are, that uh, are either perceived to be um, families of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, ISIS fighters and members, or who are actually uh, ISIS fighter, uh, families of actual fighters and members. Uh, the, the largest concentration of those families are in the Al-Hol camp uh, in Syria, uh, where there are 30,000 Iraqis there. Uh, there are thousands of others outside that camp and in Iraq. Those people, mostly women and children, if left in isolation like this, uh, there is a huge risk uh, of their exposure to more radicalization and therefore exploitation by ISIS and the like, by armed groups and organized criminal gangs. Uh, It really requires uh, efforts uh, by the community, by the government, whether in the Kurdistan region or the federal government, to not leave this issue alone and find a solution for these thousands of individuals who are left at the margin of society and vulnerable to exploitation. Yeah, it's a very, very complicated situation. And, and there seems to be no clear path to, to, for resolving it. Now, this takes us to the Iraqi parliamentary elections, which took place in October. And the Speaker of Parliament and his two deputies were elected on January 9th. Uh, but there has been some tension between two main Shia blocs, and there is currently a challenge, core challenge, on the election of the Speaker of Parliament and his deputies. What's your take on the situation? Right. Uh, so, 
It is no secret that there is a lot of political disagreement uh, in Iraq and uh, the political process since 2003 has not been able to address uh, the, the aspirations of the different communities uh, or the different political parties. So right now, the, 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 the most recent elections is happening in the context of, um, of that diversity in Iraq where diversity... Um, probably manifested uh, in itself in a lot of differences. Therefore, it made governance extremely difficult, government ineffective, and uh, created uh, space for a lot of corruption. So right now we have uh, the biggest probably tension um, is uh, among the different Shia uh, actors. On one side, you have uh, Muqtada Sadr, who has the largest number of seats, and on the other hand, you have um, uh, the what's called the uh, coordination uh, framework um, that has a, a group of uh, different Shia forces. And then there are those who are considered to be in the, the independence. Two big problems there. One is uh, Muqtada Sadr is seeking a majoritarian government. Uh, then that will lead to the probably the exclusion of some of the Shia parties. And these parties are not accepting that outcome. They are asking for a consensus um, government as in previous times. So there is instability there. If Muqtada Sadr forces his way for a majoritarian government, and those who are excluded, they include armed actors, they could make governance uh, extremely difficult for any government uh, for any government, and uh, there is the risk of violence. So, but if they go for consensus and they agree and they form a government, then you avoid political confrontation and violent confrontation among the political class. Then you have the problem somewhere else. The people, the people of Iraq, have been unhappy with the government, and uh, it's um, and especially in 2019, we have seen. Uh, large numbers of Shia youth in Baghdad and in the south go to the streets and holding the government accountable, demanding better jobs, better services, uh, r- reducing uh, foreign influence, especially Iranian influence. So if you, if the political class um, does not produce an effective government that will respond to the needs of the people, we could see the uh, the protests and instability coming after the government formation. So there's a challenging way ahead, regardless the path that the government uh, will take. Great analysis. Now I want to talk about the U.S. role in Iraq. The recent U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue agreement led to the withdrawal of U.S. troops, basically, from combat troops to a non-combat advisory role. How is that going to impact the security situation in Iraq and the greater region? In your view, I would say the security professionals, um, whether in Iraq or outside Iraq, agree that the Iraqi security forces, including uh, the Peshmerga, have good capabilities to deal with ISIS, uh, but they still need specialized support uh, from the United States and the coalition to defeat ISIS in the form of uh, training, advice, intelligence, and uh, very specialized um, uh, air support. Uh, in, in specific uh, operations. Um, so uh, the U.S. is keeping 2,500 uh, troops there in the, for to, exactly for those purposes. 
and we'll see the test uh, if uh, if uh, the, the 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 current keeping ISIS in check will will hold. But beyond security, the presence of U.S. troops uh, in Iraq and in the region signals uh, the interest uh, of the United States uh, and support from a superpower. Uh, prime ministers, politicians, uh, their political calculations uh, would be different uh, w- with the U.S. Uh, not being there. So further uh, uh, re- uh, withdrawal and retrenchment of the, in- of the United States will create vacuums that the uh, Iraqi uh, government and the Iraqi leaders will not be able to fill. And it is there where uh, n- neighboring countries and neighboring powers will actually exploit that vacuum. And that does not necessarily end up in, um, in the interest of Iraq and in the interest of peace and stability. So a continued US engagement in both security and diplomatic terms is necessary. Although there is a broad agreement that in the spirit of the strategic framework um, uh, agreement between the two countries, it is important to expand that collaboration beyond security to the economic, energy, cultural, um, and other domains. Very interesting. Finally, as the director of Middle East Program, what's your formula for peace? Oh, I wish I had uh, uh, one, or there was one, and a lasting one uh, for, for how uh, to build peace. Um, I think uh, there are. The, the, it really depends on the society, and it depends on the locality. Um, each community, each society, each country have their own particularities uh, that will make for a different formula uh, for peace. Uh, As a peace-building organization, uh, as we try and help communities uh, to to achieve peace, uh, we try try to help them identify the ingredients that goes into that formula, the process, help provide the process that gets you to the outcome of that peace uh, formula. It takes uh, objective information, and this is where our research and analysis come in to help with that. It takes uh, inclusive processes that uh, ensure that the, all the elements of the community uh, or all the members of the community and different communities are represented, their interests are represented, and uh, that there is respect, that there is justice, and they will work uh, at it. And uh, it is really important to focus on practical matters as we, where we started the conversation. As an organization, we believe peace is practical for people who are living in a locality. For them, peace is practical. It's about being respected when you go, you pass through a checkpoint. It's about being respected when you go to a government office. It's about uh, having services in your area and not being uh, ignored. And for you to be able to do those, you will need to be at the decision-making table. You need to have to have a say in your life, in your the destiny of your society. And these, uh, as I said, the combination of these will vary from one area to another. Very interesting. Do you think cent- decentralization of Iraq could be a viable solution for bringing peace? I mean, Iraq is already um, uh, has decentralization built in into the constitution. Having a federal um, uh, system is one uh, element of uh, de- uh, decentralization. Um, uh, the uh, law and provinces lays the foundation for more decentralization. I think decentralization could help 
uh, era- uh, deconstruct the centralized uh, focus on, on power in Baghdad and put it in the different uh, back into different communities. Uh, and there is a way uh, to do that um, uh, productively and for the good of the people. However, it takes work. It takes building the right capacities and the right structures to make sure that the, the, the decentralized um, functions would be performed well and it will not be captured by uh, tribes or different parties that they may have dominance in a certain area uh, because uh, it has pluses and minuses. But overall, decentralization could help uh, Iraq uh, do better. Very well. Now, Kaik Serhang, we've reached the final segment of the interview where we ask our guests three questions. Here goes the first question. When was the first time you heard about America? Um, I don't exactly remember uh, when I first heard um, the word America. Perhaps it was in the fifth grade geography. But I can tell you that the first time that I clearly remember uh, the word America, um, when it was mentioned um, in 1988 uh, on Iraqi TV, uh, right after the chemical attack on Halabja uh, by Saddam Hussein. Uh, and in that attack, 5,000 innocent uh, people lost their lives and many more were injured and displaced. The anchor said something to the effect that the American CNN uh, military network uh, is falsely saying that Iraq used chemical weapons. Um, And it was uh, an environment of extreme pain, fear, violence, um, and genocide. Uh, It felt that... uh, So uh, to hear that somebody commented on on this and... uh, uh, it was uh, from the United States. It felt good that at least someone was talking about what was happening, um, although it was also extremely painful that Saddam was perpetrating uh, all these atrocities and uh, no one uh, stopped him. It was almost a decade later that I had the opportunity to see CNN channel via satellite and uh, learned it was not a military network it was a TV station that uh, has nothing to do with the government. And that must have been after the first call for. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Now, the second question, what is a word or phrase that sums up America for you? Well, um, there are different words and phrases that uh, sum up America. For example, uh, diversity, the American dream, democracy, freedom, uh, and, other, and more. What particularly stands out Uh, for me is coexistence, um, uh, which brings many of the other concepts uh, together. Uh, In America, you have uh, diversity of ethnicity, religion, not having a religion, political belief, way of life, and much more. Uh, You have different democratic institutions and uh, people exercising varying degrees of freedom in different domains. Uh, Obviously, things are not perfect, but yet you find all these diversities and differences finding ways to coexist. And that coexistence um, is peaceful for the most part, and differences are addressed peacefully also for uh, the most part. Coexistence, as well as democracy, is an evolving matter and needs constant work 
to maintain and improve. And that co- coexistence is important for the United States as a country, but I believe it is also important uh, for um, yeah, uh, uh, to, to draw lessons from and examples from for other countries that are trying to improve their situation of uh, coexistence. Couldn't agree more. Now, finally, what's a word or phrase that sums up Kurdistan for you? Like America, uh, there are different uh, words and expressions that sum up uh, Kurdistan. Uh, one to no friends but the mountains, um, struggle, um, and the list could go on and on. But the word that I would use and I would focus on is resilience, um, and which I have been seeing in the ability of the people to endure. Uh, make a comeback after significant atrocities, um, uh, move forward despite dep- uh, repression um, from different regimes that uh, governed Iraq and, uh, and the broader uh, Middle East. Uh, that resilience is both uh, individual and also at the communal level. Uh, it is com- continued generation after generation. Having said that, uh, I am watching with interest uh, how the concept of resilience uh, would change and gets tested by modern technology, by migration and mobility, and the tsunami of cultural, uh, external cultures that affect uh, uh, the region. Very well said. And this sums up our interview. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate thank it. you, Kaglovan. It's, it's a pleasure having you, Kaksan. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government representation in Washington, D.C. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast either on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. Also, for more information about the Kurdistan region, please visit our website at www.us.gov.krd or follow us on Twitter at krg_usa. USA.